now, your host. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. And this is Trav. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast, your podcast of international exploration, supernatural elimination and investigation, and all other kinds of crazy worlds that TriTac Games produces. Thanks for joining us this week and every week as we explore these strange places and hopefully give you some ideas that you can use in your own TriTac game or in your games that you do from any other company. This week, we're talking about being a trader, more or less of a fringeworthy orientation, as in if you're going to another world, what kind of stuff would you bring with you? And how to be an effective trader in a new world. It can apply to other games, such as Hardwired Hinterland, Incursion, probably not Bureau 13. Uh, except the fact that usually you don't worry about money very much in Bureau 13. Yep. Well, actually, this part of the question is, what is the form of currency? What are the various forms of trade? You may end up in a world where flea markets don't exist anymore. They've done away with that world's equivalent of eBay. Basically, everyone sells everything online, but they don't sell for money. They sell for e-dollars or e-pence or e-euros or whatever. And the only way you get e-euros is to put money into this little purse you got to buy and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and so that world may be a little more difficult to sell things on. Well, that's always going to be a challenge is basically figuring out some form of exchange. The, sometimes the easiest one is barter because at least you know you're getting a good for a good. And you can at least get some concept in your own mind whether you're getting a good value. But whenever you're using any kind of currency, then that gets a little bit di more difficult. My rule of thumb is to go and find some food market and find out how much a loaf of bread costs. And use that as your rule of thumb. Yep. But also, uh, in terms of actual bank rolling, the IDET may give you, say, uh, several ounces of gold or silver. And that's your initial bank roll on that world. And how much you get for that? Maybe 10 ounces of gold will, will keep you in room and board for the next three months. Or it may only last a month. Or it may turn around you can't sell them at all because specie is illegal for private ownership. So yeah, sorry, if you have you got gold bullion and silver bullion, bye, it's gone, we're confiscating it, and, and, and then we're gonna fine you for that. Then you turn around and meld it down into wedding rings or other types of jewelry and yeah. sell it as jewelry. Say so for example, you ever watch the show Deadwood, if you were to turn up into Deadwood and you were trying to use gold, well, gold wasn't really worth very much in that town because it was a gold rush town. They were finding yeah. gold like crazy. So you you wind up somewhere and be like, oh, man, gold isn't worth anything here. But you're right. If you had a skill where you could turn it into jewelry, the jewelry would still work because they were buying a service, not the material itself so much. But you're right, Blix. There was a time in American history when the government said gold was worth $35 a ounce, period. It was set at that price. You come into a town where the local government or the, the kingdom itself has said this ounce of gold is worth a bushel of grain. And that's all you can get for it, no matter how much gold you have, no matter how rare it is. Well, that's what you're going to have to deal with. Right. But the Demixie, who knows what currency they work off of? They might like cat food. Yeah, like District 9, where these you could buy stuff from them with cat food. Okay. Well, any mechanized or industrial society is going to have to have some kind of representative currency. Yeah. There's just no way for you yeah. to do business as anything beyond a town. I mean, if you, if you decide that you wanted to go and uh, build a power plant... I mean, are you seriously going to, you know, drag, you know, coffers full of gold bullion, you know, to, over to the iron foundry to get your parts made? If there's a banking system, you need to get a bank account. And getting a bank account might require you to get a form of false identity. Because, let's say here in America, you want to get a bank account. One thing you're going to need is a social security number. Yes. And you don't got one. You don't got one. You can't use and you can't use yours from Earth Prime because it may be wrong or maybe already in use. And then you go to the pawn shop because that is the bank uh, record for anybody who doesn't have that kind of identification. Today, pawn shops require people to have driver's licenses. So, well, you know what we're saying is that you know if you haven't taken an economics class, I think most of us probably have. They go into why money is needed and why societies rely off of money. I mean, it's pretty universal. You know, the barter system does work. It does. Not any kind of social way, any kind of big social way. You're talking about two tribes of 30 people each. You know, you can barter. That's fine. 
But once you start getting up into higher numbers, you know, you can't break down, you know, certain goods and stuff. You know, somebody can't trade half a bike or a tenth of a bike. So if they're a bike builder, what do they do? They have to trade the whole bike and get a whole bike's worth of other stuff so that they can break that up and then trade that up with certain things. And essentially what they're doing is they're creating a money system because they got, I got a thousand boxes of marshmallows with this bike. And now I can buy this with 10 boxes of marshmallows. It's like, well, skip all that and just trade it in for money and then use the money to buy all that other stuff. Right. And that's basically, I mean, that's, that's like the really simple breakdown of why currency is just completely essential to any society larger than, you know, 30, 40 people. You, you only need one chicken for that week, you know, or for that, for that day. And two chickens are okay, but you know, a dozen chickens, a hundred chickens, uh, no, too many chickens. I'm not in chicken business. I'm a blacksmith. You know, I don't need a hundred chickens. <laughs> right, but your sword, the sword that you made for this guy is worth a hundred chickens. Yes. Or that bag of nails. So what you do is that you go and say, okay, I'll take that plow from you and I'll give you this document that represents a hundred chickens. And so with little ch- with little boxes on it, and then you can come over and take a chicken whenever you want one and we'll mark it off, which in essence has created a representative currency. Well, that's essentially what a dollar bill is. It's a note. Or I'll give you a hundred slips of paper, each one saying good for a chicken. Hey, hey, wait, 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 wait. If, if each one of those is worth a chicken, would you call them bucks? <laughs> clucks, maybe? No, clucks, clucks. clucks. Yes. Oh, <laughs> I got 50 clucks. <laughs> you know, you can always trade it in for a Henway. <laughs> <laughs> We, we skipped on the money issues, so let's just continue with that and go into theft and security. Once you have something that's small and portable, someone's going to try to walk off with it. You can either carry it on your purse at all times if it's small enough, but then you're just taking the risk of being beaten up for it at that point. Like those guys that have the bags full of diamonds and are, you know, they're always walking around tucked in somewhere. You're going to need some place safe to store your money. And if you're starting to make a lot of money, you still need a place to store, store you in terms of profit. Yeah. Now, since you're being funded by IDED at this point, everything you make is all gravy at that point. But at some point in time, you're either going to run out of goods or you become a trader. You're going to be buying things from other people to sell to other people. And that's when you're going to start worrying about your margins and so forth. And margins are not going to be all that great. I mean, uh, despite what they show on TV, life as a trader is going to be, you know, nickel and diming at some point. Sometimes it'd be great to, it'd be great to make that 5% profit margin sometimes. Well, if you're making a 5% yeah. profit margin, that means you're selling a lot of something. Or you're selling something that's really valuable. You know, but most of the time, uh, most people are trying to sell things at stores uh, at a much higher margin because of the fact that they don't yes. expect to sell constantly. You know, supermarkets are an example where they literally are on a 5% margin. Yep. And, but you see how much food goes in and out of a supermarket, so it works. Yeah, if you're a peddler, you probably are looking for like between 20 and 30% margin at that point. What do you do with that money once you have it? You know, you, you've got this, you know, this big chest of money at the end of the day. Uh, well, hopefully you have a big chest to put that money in because that's one of your uh, basic forms of security. Right. Which is to put it in a box that's too tough to break open easily and too heavy to be picked up and taken away from you. Right. A small safe, a strong box, is a good example of a basic form of security. Now, of course, you, you can always, if they have a banking system there, you, you can always use the bank. That's generally a pretty good way of doing things. Mm-hmm. If you have a form of identification that they'll accept. Right, exactly. Well, I'm just saying, like we were talking about before, you set up camp and you pay taxes and you're part of that town. Right. You know then they're going to make it so that you have a, a bank to use, you would right. think, you would hope. As you get in real good with these people, they you might get an inroad, what do they call it, a, what would you call it, Bruce, a pay-in. You might get a pay-in for them to say, well, tell you what, since you gave me this good deal on this, we'll help you get a bank account here. And they're not only helping you out, they're helping themselves out by getting a new customer, i.e. you, this new trader that hooked them up. I've always said that the number one asset that any explorer has is getting somebody in the community to vouch for them. Yes. Yes. It also depends on, we say getting a bank, a bank account, it depends on the era, too. Forty years ago, 
I was as a kid, I was able to get a bank account, and I didn't any kind of ID at all because it didn't require it. It's it's changed over time, you know. So depending on when when and where you're going, the only ID they need need to know is you have a bag of money. I have a place to put it. <laughs> Actually, John, four years ago, you did need a form of identification. You needed a signature card. That's right. So you go in there and you'd say, this is my money and this is my name. And anybody who comes in and signs this cor- signs correctly, this, this signature can take that money. Oh, my God. I remember that. Now you have to have two forms of government ident- identification and someone to sponsor you. But there is one way of avoiding all of that. And what's that? Be the banker. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when you say you're a merchant, you know, money lenders are merchants. That, though, requires a lot more knowledge and a lot lot more capital initially. Mm-hmm. And when I say capital, capital in the local currency. Right. As a game master, especially for something like Savage Worlds, I don't think I would role play all of that out. Because, I mean, for one, I don't know anything about banking myself, you know, so... You know, if they bought the merit that gives them finances or whatever, they can explain it as being whatever it is. You know, say, all right, I'm I'm going to be a, a personal banker in a town, and I'm going to buy, you know, a finances merit, you know, wealth or whatever whatever it is, and whatever system you're playing, you know, at this level, which will represent that's how much money that I have coming in and can be sustained, and it's explained by this is the business I'm doing. It basically just gives a reason for people to interact with you. So, yes, you're running a storefront. You don't have to run the storefront all day. You know, spend three hours of your four-hour game session running the storefront. You run the storefront for five minutes, and then you have your adventure occur at that point. Yeah, if you're on a world and you're trading, that's just background. For D20, that would be like, how are you making money? Fine. Roll your profession roll. Yep. Against health score. That's that's how you determine in D20 whether you make money or not. And unlike D&D, it doesn't matter what your profession is. It's just you're using whatever skills you have on your sheet to make money. Each level you roll, and if you've made money, fine. If you failed a wealth roll, you haven't made any money. Right. That That's all it is. It's not meant to be a, a hardcore tactic. It's just yeah. it's background material. Yeah. Yeah. We're not playing you know, the, the game Hamaburi. However, it, it also the, – the storefront acts as a plot device yes. because it allows the GM to bring people into your store to interact with you and advance the plot. It also allows him to bring objects into, you know, into contact with you or into contact with the people that you're talking to to, again, create conflict, to create drama, to create new opportunities for plot. Hey, you know, a really good example, if you want to see this in in media, is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You know, the magic shop that they had? Well, you didn't see them running the shop. I mean, there would be scenes where they would go in and you'd see them, you know, work in the shop or whatever. But the scene that they would show where they're working the shop is where something important happened. Either some drama element in the story or some encounter or something. The only time you ever saw the inside of that shop is when it mattered to the story. Which is exactly how you'd play it in the games. Like, all right, well, I'm working the shop all day today. Okay, well, around 3 o'clock, blah, 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 blah. And then you go on with your adventure. Yeah, you're working your shop and two and three guys come in and say, it's a nice shop you got here. Be terrible something that happened to it. Right, and then you deal with it from there. Right, because that's another part of, of the money issues, and that is payoffs. Oh yeah, bribes are business. Several places right now in the real world, uh, if you're going around business in say Russia or many um, South Southeast Asian nations, bribes are included in the in the budget for most American companies. Right, it's, it's in the United States too. It just depends on who you're bribing. Are you bribing? Are you bribing the union? Are you bribing an inspector? Are you bribing? Uh, seriously? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Health inspectors uh, are one of the areas where a lot of bribes get passed around. We should make a disclaimer that this is not a proper business. Unfortunately, this is how it is in business, yeah. so it's not like oh, we can... I'm not saying that's the way it should be. I'm just saying that I've worked in engineering all, pretty much all my life and worked in some areas where, with buildings and such, and I've gone in and I've you know, gone into buildings that have been built within a few years, and I'm looking at things going, well, this is not to code, and that's not to code, and this is not to code, and I'm like, how this thing get built? How this thing get approved? And it's like, oh, because they paid off the inspector. I mean, that's that's the only way it could have gotten built. Either that, or the inspector was so unbelievably stupid, you know, that he overlooked it. That he, you know, and that's that's just it, most likely he got paid off. The Gulf oil spill, 
The payoff was, oh, we'll hire you in the company when you quit your job as an inspector. <laughs> you know, things like that. You know, so bribes take many forms. You know, right. And, and unless you're in a world that has a really aberrant, divergent psychology than our world, every world has crime. Yes. As you said, you should expect those guys to be coming in at some point or another and say, you know, be really ashamed if something happened at this nice shop. At which point you get to decide whether or not you want to create your own gang and be tougher than those. And that's a possibility of going that direction. Or you want to just simply pay the, the cost of doing business and possibly get yourself a powerful friend. Paying off the gangster or whoever's extorting you is not always horrible. If you yeah. think about it, you pay him off, right? Well, he's probably got cops in his pocket. So now if you're doing something that's a little shady or you want to do, you know, you want to do some shady stuff, you don't have to worry about the cops bothering you because they don't want the cops bothering you and they already pay them off for certain things. And if they know that you're involved with them, you can ride the coattails of those bribes. You're just paying into a system. Right. And it's also true that in the places where they have multiple gangs or multiple criminal organizations, uh, the people that you pay the uh, security to, they actually will go to bat for you against the other gangs if the other gangs show up and want to get paid too. But I will tell you this. Don't ever pay for protection from a man with no name. Because <laughs> he, he, might, he might be getting paid by the other guy and then you and then the other guy. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I, I was listening to the uh, one of our – previous shows the anti-hero show and we were talking about him yeah well he did give them everything they asked for right uh, i wrote a little story um scenarios in the is in our forums called way and cool it about two explorers who come to a alternate java well first thing you had to do is go through customs at that point and going through customs they basically had a lot of stuff confiscated they're doing a fairly strict interpretation of the quran so all their dolls got confiscated because they're depictions of, peop of people. They're idols. Their computers got confiscated. Well, they had some electronics, and the electronics got confiscated because the, uh, the local king decided that he was not going to have any of those things in his kingdom. You may set up your little shop here in a, in a place, and you start setting out your things, and the first official who walks in by stops, stares, and calls the police on you because you have... A little Betty Boop figuring on your on, uh, in the middle of your display, and that that's an idol. <laughs> and that works real good in stories, John. But I mean, I have to get back to what Blick said, and that is, is that you don't want to be dealing with the minutia like that in an actual role playing game. You, you just have to kind of assume that you know that you had a few false starts, but now you've got the right list of gear that you can sell when you actually get the game going. That's true. We've been focusing heavily on Friendsworthy, but you know, let's we should mention some of the other ones as well. Um, okay. I know we said that Bureau Thirteen is probably not a place you could you could really do much of this, but but as a cover, it's a good cover. But you, well, I was thinking, I was thinking, what about something like a Goblin Market? Ooh, I don't know what you mean. Please explain. It's from Hellboy. Yeah, in Hellboy Two, the Golden Army. They had the behind-the-scenes, I want to say it was either the Goblin Market or the Troll Market, where Hellboy, Abe, Liz, mm -hmm. and Johan all went in. And it was all these supernatural creatures walking around. It was like a, a bazaar. And yeah, yeah. Like Diagon Alley in Harry yeah. Potter. Yeah, and yeah. the agents could sit there and walk around or set up shop. And because they know the supernatural... I'm sure even in a supernatural secret community, there's humans who dabble and the supernatural creatures go, oh, it's okay. They know about this, that, and the other type of things that you know we deal with. <laughs> They're okay. So yeah, the Bureau 13 agents could use merchants as a cover in that type of secret behind-the-scenes oh, yeah. supernatural market. There are fairy markets where you know basically the, the Fae and so forth show up and sell things, but... You don't want to buy anything from the fairy market, especially food, because, well, fairy markets do not occur in this world. They occur in the fairy world. You don't want to buy no food and eat it there, because then you're stuck. Some of our listeners may not really understand this whole fairy thing. Could you be a little bit more more clear on this? It's a, old legends about elves and fairies that if you go to their world, enter the land of the fae, and then you eat food there. You eat food that they provide you. Well, basically, you're now stuck. 
you, because you've eaten the food, you now sort of become part fairy or part fae, and you really are now tied there. You can't return back home. I, I'm going to say you can't buy anything there, but, this, but you know, anything you buy is going to be usually a trick or a dodge of some sort, that when you bring it back to the real world, it won't be what you, what you bought. The, those golden eggs you bought turn out to be rotten eggs when you take them to the real world. You know, so, <clears throat> so, so I wouldn't go to that. I wouldn't want to set up a market stand there. No, I wouldn't either. <laughs> well, you might want to set up a market stand there if you're there to collect information. Right. And just consider all the buying and selling to be part of that transaction, the value of it, in, you're get, exchanging for the information that you need. Now, hey, this is something that um, that I, I've, I have tried to initiate in some of my games, but I haven't really ever pulled it off too well. Uh, for whatever reason, is an information broker. Now we're talking about you know you're selling goods and you're talking to people and stuff. But if they know you're an outsider, and something like a fairy market would be, this would be a great thing for that. Is that you know you deal in information, so they would come up to you, and they would ask you questions about things, you know, on the outside world, and you would exchange that for information on their end. And then you would just you'd start you'd have to keep tabs on all this information that you collect from all these different people that come around, but you could exchange information from person to person. Now that could be dangerous because one of the most dangerous commodities to have is information. So I'm not really sure how that would pan out, but it's kind of an interesting concept. I think so too. My biggest question would be what would the rate of exchange be? It would be subjective, really. It would have to be. I know, but that's what I'm saying is that, you know, how, how many rumors equals one solid fact? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm saying it's, it's like I said, I've never been able to pull it off successfully. I just, it, it was a concept that I'd come up with some time ago. And, um, you know, it was, it was, it's been very hard to, to implement in any way. No, it has merit because the people in the fairy realm, they would want to know things about the material plane, the human's world. So yeah, it has merit, but yeah, you have to come up with, I mean, you could just go tidbit for tidbit and go from there and it would be along the lines of, okay, well, if your information is proven bad, you just kind of, you know, damage your next transaction because to them, you lied to them. Well, hey, you know, in a magic world or a fairy world like that, you could take like some kind of like blood oath or something for whenever you give an answer. So that if you lie, you'll suffer like a curse. Yeah. Um, so you so you would be compelled to tell the truth. Now you know, in thinking about this, I would imagine that this is best run as an NPC type of thing. Like this wouldn't be a business that you would run, but it'd be a business where you would go to get information, and they might take gold and stuff as well for information. But then again, I keep coming back to information is the most dangerous commodity. So it's like you could see these guys being you know picked off by people that they might have information on that they don't want them selling it uh there's the fremont troll it's a real troll he's been cemented in place under the uh i-99 bridge and uh, but at night he wakes up and there's a trade of information going on between various people who know that he th that he exists but he only trades information for information and he decides the price himself what you know is your information good enough for him to give you more information you know he depends what you what you give him in terms of information that sounds like a plot device john oh it is it entirely is <laughs> that's what it is exactly it's, it's a plot device but you know that's that if you can give it to an npc that's what that's what it's going to turn into a plot right. device that's fine john i have nothing wrong i have nothing against plot devices i just need i just think it's important to identify them yes <laughs> It's like in the uh, movie Constantine. Uh-huh. You had the character played by the lead singer from Bush, Gwen Stefani's husband. Gavin's his name. He had the part in Constantine Beeman where he was an information broker. He knew about things about heaven and hell, and Constantine had to go to him in order to find out things. Okay. To get the story along. So, yeah, it would. information brokers like that, it's like, yeah, we know Lenny he has a little repair shop down that side alley. He also knows about this type of supernatural thing. Let's go to him. Yeah, that would be a totally NPC thing. That would be too much of a niche thing mm -hmm. to have a player character be. It wouldn't work out as anything more than a plot device. Yeah. yeah. An NPC that you would go to now and again for a particular type of information. Oh, we need to know about the fairy realm. We'll go to so-and-so. He wanders around in the park talking to himself, or so everyone thinks. 
Well, in most of your D&D type worlds, the, the Thieves Guild exists primarily as an information source. So you go to the King of Thieves and you pay – either you owe him a favor or you pay him some kingly sum and he gives you a map of the sewer system that lets you get into the castle with, through a secret door that supposedly nobody knows anything about. That kind of brokerage is not uncommon. Yep. And I would think more often it's not the, you owe him a favor. Well, it just depends on how much gold you have, I suppose, and how much gold he needs. Favors are worth more than gold sometimes, especially if he knows who you are and what you can provide. Because it's completely undefined. I had a bank gift card. It was worth $25, and it could be used anywhere. And they took that card, and they took it out to Target, and they bought a Target gift card with it. And I said, you just took something that could be used anywhere and exchanged it for something that can only use, be used in one place. For, and only the goods and services that are available there. They just thought the fact that it was a bank gift card, it just it didn't have that image of gift that they were looking for. So <laughs> they exchanged. So yeah. A favor for a favor is great for the person who's giving the initial favor because he's because he knows – what favor is initially. Mm-hmm. You don't know what the payback is unless, of course, you actually define it right there and then. That's a classic deal in the underworld kind of things, or among spies, mm-hmm. even possibly uh, in religions. And again, I'm all in favor of that because it just makes things more interesting yep. because yep. you don't know initially what you're getting into, and that causes tension, and that causes drama, and I'm all about drama. So let's, let's talk about incursion. So here you are on the, on the Adananu. I, when I ran it, I assumed that everyone who was taken as a slave were stripped of their goods and they were just tossed into a cargo hold. You have a whole cargo hold full of, well, human stuff. And the thing is, people say, well, it's all worthless. Not really, considering that a lot of, a lot of these worlds are more or less cargo cults living off of old Ashani technology. Yeah, your cell phone may not work. But the electronic parts and stuff could be taken out and used elsewhere. Complete camping gear. You can sell it. Camping gear works at any world you go to. <laughs> oh my god, I just read John, that's right. It's because of its leftover technology from the Enchanty. Oh my god, all of these worlds are basically planet sized cargo cults. Oh my <laughs> yes. <laughs> you have technology on that ship that from Earth that works on any world because it's simple technology. Camping gear, tents, complete canoes in there probably from still taken from people who are abducted, you know, canoe and all. So you actually have a built-in set of stuff for trade when you initially go around to various places that you can sell and get rid of. Now there's probably some cargo set aside that belongs to the uh, the merchant that lives on the ship, and he won't let you touch that. But he, you know, he knows how to sell stuff. So here's one way of actually having an NPC do a lot of the work for you. Because he'll sell you stuff for you for a fee. Uh, he'll take a take a cut of the gross uh, gross profits at that point. But he'll you know the, the the merchant on board your ship will gladly help you figure out the local markets and sell your so that stuff you have in the uh, in the cargo hold. Eventually, you can run out and you're gonna need to figure out how to make a living buying and selling stuff in different worlds. If you use the fisherman paradigm up in New England, whoever owns the ship gets half. Yep. And then after you cut off the price for the uh, uh, whatever the fuel is, or uh, which is great on the Ashani because it's water, uh, mm-hmm. and other types of operating expenses, then everything else becomes you know shares for the crew, depending upon they've got it all divvied up. And the bug will happily sell all that for you for a 10%, 20% cut in gro- of the gross profits. He won't talk net. He won't talk net does not exist. He wants gross profits. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> it's an old Hollywood t- term. You know, actors who don't know anything will sign for a portion of the net profits, and then the studios worked very hard to make those net profits disappear. <laughs> yeah, there is no net, only gross. All right. Let's try this then. Hardwired yeah. Hinterland. Oh. Scavenger Heaven, because you can find stuff. Yes. I mean, you find a Dunkin' Donuts. It probably has a week's worth of coffee in there. What, 35, 40 pounds of coffee at 25 to $30 a pound? 
You made your year's wages right there. You could go to an area where they haven't had any coffee in a while or it's hard to get it there. Or, yeah. You know, and you could trade it for even more. That just depends on supply and demand then. Well, you need to know where your market is. Obviously, if, you, if Canada would be a good place to sell tea because they're Canadian. Yep. They may not want it so much on Pango Pango or whatever it's called. Etiwanga. Etiwanga, thank you. Because of the small creatures that build up entire buildings uh, and establishments out of nothing and maintain them, they're called maintain ants because they're small little ant-like creatures, it's possible for you to find you know, completely bizarre things out in the middle of nowhere, and it's just like finding a gold strike. And you just go and you work the strike until it's gone, and then you move on to something else, or you start scouting for something else. Yeah. It depends on how you want to make your money and earn your living in that world. Or in some cases, abstracted. Yes, you have your DC-3, and you're running the cargo run. And at this point, the GM says, we're not going to worry what you're carrying for cargo. You're just doing your cargo run. You'll make this much money. The main thing is to get you to go to places you normally wouldn't go to. So you're going to Etiwanga because you have a cargo for Etiwanga. And that's one of the main reasons to be a trader is because it will take you to some place that's interesting. Yes. <laughs> As a scavenger, you're going to run to other scavengers in various places looking for those hits. A lot of times you're going to run into a public building and it's not going to have a whole lot of stuff in there. Stuff that actually can't be used because it requires a lot more infrastructure than what's available. Say you run into a building that has it's completely decked out in, 19, in 1950s uh, office technology. Okay, uh, what are we going to do with that? I mean, that's great. It's a accounting office. they got these accounting machines. Do folks need it? Maybe I'd be a great find. Or like I said, you find the Dunkin' Donuts. You find a Starbucks. You're in coffee heaven at that point. <laughs> a show that was on in, in the 70s and 80s called Salvage One. Oh, oh yeah. wow. That was a great show because they talked about how this object, which everyone thinks is nothing but junk, be turned into valuable things just by knowing a good market for it and recognizing that something that was used for, for this could be also used for that. That was a good show to watch just for inspiration. Not to mention they also went to the moon on stuff that they was in a junkyard. We, we pretty much covered most of the things here, uh, at least in, in general. One of the things we didn't talk about was looking at the parts. What are some of the things that you can use, either you should be doing, or you uh, it would be advantage to you in order to be successful as a merchant? Obviously, dressing the part. If you are in a culture that has everybody's wearing togas, like it's a Roman-esque type, mm -hmm. you might want to get your hands on some bed sheet. Some professions actually have specific clothing that you should be wearing when you're performing that business. Well, obviously, yeah, like a blacksmith, you'd want to you'd want to have that leather apron to keep you know from your clothes catching on fire. Let's say you were a guy who worked in auto repair, where having a, a uniform that's one of those coveralls, yeah, that tells everybody who you are and what you do, and therefore it helps them accept you because you're wearing what they're expecting. If you're going to be a merchant trading in goods that they can't get on that world, you don't want to blend in too much because you, you need to play that part. You need to be that stranger with that strange item. Yeah, you want to look a little exotic to stand well, out. That's marketing. Yeah, the guy with the strange clothing over there. Yeah, he's got these really cool spices and stuff. He right. says fashions are from over the mountains. You're in some medieval town in England-type world. And you've set up a cart and you're selling exotic spices from, from you know, the, the Middle East or something. You might want to wear a fez and have a monkey dancing around and some kind of like red vest with uh, embroidery on it or something. So people come over and they go, oh, well, these, these are real Persian spices, you know, because they bought it from the Persian guy. And you may not be Persian at all, but if you're a baker, then you should wear a baker's hat. Right. If you wear one of those aprons that has like the big pockets in the front for stuff, that tells a lot of people that you're a merchant if you have like a money-changing bib hanging off the front of you. There's a whole lot of professions that have very identifiable clothing that they wear, and they're proud of it. That's, they're saying, this is what we wear because we are this. Yeah. And if you go to a world where they're like that, then if you want the other merchants to accept you, then you're going to have to wear that. Another thing that can help you is embracing the local re religious symbology. Putting a big prominent cross 
on your wagon if you're in a Catholic-type community. Putting the wrong one can be a problem. But if you do know what the local religion is and what their symbols are, adding them to your cart shows that you respect them, you know, assuming you're doing, you're putting it in a place of promise, hopefully, and also helps you blend in because you're saying, we also have something in common here. Again, well, that, that goes back to the research of just seeing, if you're seeing the crosses everywhere, yeah, yeah. it's like, I've driven through uh, southern Ohio back in the past and all along the freeways. Big wooden crosses and yards and on the side and they're on the billboards. And you're going, okay, I can tell this is a pretty religious area here, southern Ohio. You know, it's and just you pick up on these things in that initial survey that you take to gauge your potential market. Right. And putting a little cross on your uh, on a lapel pin can raise your personal capital by who knows. Probably can't hurt you. Or maybe as simple as making sure you bring out a prayer rug so when it comes time to call the prayer, you have your own prayer rug to throw out and make sure you face the same direction everyone else does and go to prayer. Uh, yes, yes. Well, I would say that the, the religious aspect of all this is probably one you want to avoid as much as you possibly can unless you are like really – fantastic at that sort of thing you know at observing it and knowing you know the, re the religions and such and, and knowing what the area is like because there's to be nothing like um well i watched the movie uh, uh i was angora agora and it was the story of hypatia and it's in alexandria when the the christians take over alexandria take over complete control of it and they run the pagans out of the library not a good day for pagans you don't want to be worshiping, uh, you know, Zeus or Apollo at that point, right? I'm saying you adopt the accepted religious symbology. Well, you have to be careful because it could be in transition, so you better know if it is or it isn't. You know, if like if if you're there and you know you can tell that there's a civil unrest and it could go from one religion to another, you probably want to avoid that at all costs. Unless it's one of those societies, and it's tough. That's that's a real tough one to be in because many times you have to uh, prescribe to one or the other, or both sides will will stone you to death. Right. So yeah, that can be tricky. Yeah, if you're the only one who isn't kneeling on a prayer cloth, the word's going to get out, and people may stop coming to you because you're the wrong kind of person. Right. Being able to adopt these kinds of things is a good way to buffer yourself until you, know, you can find out how much you really have to do or just until you gain enough familiarity that you can actually pull it off for real. Yep. Yep. Another thing that can really help you is finding out some way of embracing patriotism or at least engaging the patriotism of your customers. It always amazes me that you put a, a flag on a tumbler uh, on the 4th of July, and that tumbler is now a patriotic tumbler. Right. And you can sell it for a premium. You know, <laughs> I mean, right, oh, right. Yeah. You, you pick up an object and you say, the so-and-sos, the hated so-and-sos, they drove me out for selling this product because it was against their something. So I've come here because I know you really appreciate it because you're not them and you love freedom and, and this is a freedom rock. Just by taking something having to do with the country, any uh, iconic object uh, or symbol of the country, and as, as attaching it to one of your products can usually increase its value or at least its desirability amongst your customers. These are freedom fries. No. Uh. And that is entirely true. I mean, I've seen people sell freedom fries. I'm not kidding. You guys, I resisted the freedom rock joke. Freedom Rock, man, turn it up. <laughs> I was at a Jesus festival where they had all kinds of Christian rock. Right. And there was a guy there, and he was selling hot sausage. And the way he got customers was he said, come on and eat this hot sausage. It's delicious, and the calories have already been prayed over. <laughs> As if that got rid of it. And he had people lined up to eat that. And, you know... <laughs> It's like, okay, I don't have to worry about whether it's nutritious or not. The calories have been prayed for. All right. <laughs> you know, and we all knew it wasn't true, but you know, somehow it just it just sounded it sounded good. Yeah, I want to eat food that's been prayed over. Yeah. That's better food than just food that's off some shelf somewhere. I want food that's been properly 
religiously massaged. So like holy sausages? Yeah. When the orphans show up with their boxes of cards, don't you buy them? The Girl Scout cookies. Okay, come on. They're not better cookies than anything that you can buy in a store. But you want to buy the Girl Scout cookies, right? Yes. Because the Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts too. Because they're so cute. Little girl comes up to you, buy cookies. Right, but it's also a sense of Americana involved in it. Yeah, yeah right. But, it, it's but, like kids selling candy for um, like peewee hockey. Oh, come on, peewee hockey. It's right up there with you know mm-hmm. little league and all that. You want to buy that? Yeah. You want to buy because you want to support the things that are part of your culture. Or wait a minute, wait a minute. Like those ribbons that everybody's been buying for the past number of years. Yeah. This freaking, you know what I'm talking about. I know. There's ribbons of all kinds, and then the the elastic wristbands. Wristbands. Yeah. Yeah. Those are prime examples of that. Even t-shirts, pink t-shirt in Breast Cancer Awareness Month is a much better t-shirt than any other time. And you can sell a lot more pink t-shirts during that month than you can any other time of the year. Hmm. Being able to link your product to some cultural desirable aspect is a really good way of increasing your sales and also increasing your status in the community because they see you as supporting the things that they value. So you're in a Demixie world and you want to set up a stand and you're selling you know, fly pops to, uh, to support the local hive queen. <laughs> <You know. laughs> and some kind of uh, digestive emulsion that really gets the best out of your carcasses. Yeah, it's, it's all for the good of the hive, though. It's all for the good of the hive, right. You were talking about selling peanut butter earlier, and it just reminded me of the blizznas. <laughs> so <laughs> we got these Nutter Butter cookies here that we got a, you know, a surplus of them on IDET. Oh, okay, here you go, yeah. <laughs> put a blizznas stamp on the top of it, you know, just go and, like, put a layer of frosting and, 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 and stamp a blizznas image on it. These are blizznas cookies now. Oh, boy, I got to have some of them. And they're the Nutter Butters that you got, you know, an accidental shipment to Hatsumi. It's like, what are we going to do with these? What Earth are the Blizznets on again? Yeah. <laughs> Blizznets Nutter Butters. Oh, yeah. I want one of those. Sure. So anything you can do to help you blend in at the same mm-hmm. time promote yourself is always a good thing. And hopefully it'll generate more plot threads as part of your adventures. Yep. This is a way to take totally new character backgrounds. You could have an IDEC campaign where you are exploring on worlds and stuff and you pose as interdimensional traders. And you could have your one guy, I was an ad man on Madison Avenue. Oh, this guy, he was a storekeeper at a mom and pop store in, in middle America. Uh, this guy, he right. was a banker or a Wall Street trader or whatever. And these very unique occupations, they're found out to be fringe worthy. Most people would think, what are you going to do with these guys if they're fringe-worthy? How are they going to support anything when the fringe-worthy go out and explore and they have to fight? These are the guys that you teach them combat skills because you get that in the, the template for D20. But they have now a role that they can play for the fringe-worthy, these interdimensional traders, because they have these skills that you would need in order to do that. Yep. It, yep. It's a good way for exciting and different character backgrounds instead of the ones that most people would take, either combat-oriented or science-oriented or medic or whatever. So it's just a new chance to role-play something different. Yep. yep. The last reason I can see for being a trader is so you can have a plot reason to pull something out that you really need and otherwise wouldn't be able to justify. You've seen movies where here's some guy and he's running some store and they're like, yeah, but things are really bad. We really need this. And he goes into his basement and he pulls out this box that he's had since World War II and inside of it is a box of grenades or an old crystal set, whatever it is, a plot reason to have something that you otherwise wouldn't be able to justify because you say, oh, I don't know. I have so much stuff here. I even, I don't know what I have. And it can really help the GM out if he wants to give you a buy on something where you get stuck in a situation where you don't have an out, you don't have a solution, but you can 
by having this store filled with all kinds of stuff, mm-hmm. you can get it. Richard is a good example of this <laughs> because I've known Richard for years, and he always amazes me at the stuff he brings to conventions. Oh yes, oh yes, I've. Remember when he brought the anti-vampire machine gun rounds? Vaguely, I think so. That might have been a while back. These were 50 caliber shells, Russian-made, with wood tips to them. <laughs> okay? And the reason was is because it was, at that part in the war, in World War II, metal and lead were so rare that they actually were making their bullets out of wood. Wow. <laughs> and he had a whole pile of these things, and he was selling them as anti-vampire bullets. They were like flying off the shelves until he found out that they were still alive. Oh. <laughs> oh, no. At which point he stopped selling. <laughs> oh. Oh, if you guys could see the face pop right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you're a trader, you can get stuff in your back room that will just stun people. It can be an asset or it can be a liability, of course. Yeah. I love it as a plot device because in my game, I give people equipment tokens. I say, you have a token, which means that when you get into a situation where you need something and you don't have it, rather than worrying about the minutia of carrying every possible thing you could possibly need you know, in your car, in your whatever, you could say, oh, yeah, I didn't mention this. It's in the RV or it's in the Moscovy or whatever, and you toss in the token and you have it. Well, storefront is just sort of a stationary equipment token where you can say, oh, yeah, I flip over this roll of rugs and we've got a sword. Oh, yeah, we needed that. Hmm. Or a, a titanium bar or a roll of fiber optic cable. I mean, it could be anything. And it's a perfect justification for it. Yeah, or a 50 cal machine gun. Yeah, if you can justify it, sure. We all saw that scene a Terminator 2 where they... <laughs> Just pulled that big, huge plate off the ground, and she had this huge cache of weapons down in the... It was at Baja. Oh, yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah, I've been collecting them over the years. I I guess I need them now. Yeah, another good one is, uh, like, that basement of that, that bar in Dust to Dawn. You know, all right. the crazy stuff they had in there from truckers, you know, it's uh-huh. like that they, they, they had pirated from them. You, you go into any merchant's back room, and I'm sure you'll find something back there that has no business being there. It just somehow got there. There was a movie in the 80s that had Jerry Reed from Smokey and the Bandit, Suzanne <laughs> Plachette from the Bob Newhart Show, and Dom DeLuise. It was called Hot Stuff. And basically, they were a bunch of Miami cops who decided to take over a pawn shop to bust up a fencing ring. And just they, oh yeah, you if you if you get it, if you can find it, watch it because it's funnier than hell. Um, basically, they did, and then just the stuff that these people would be bringing into this pawn shop to try to you know fence through and everything. You had this old sixty-year-old couple, like they had their yacht and they're bringing in things of pot, and Dom DeLuise is there smoking it and stuff, and just I mean, it's just crates of chickens and like to the ceiling and they did have weapons and stuff and just it it was a comedy yeah but i mean that it would be a prime example if you wanted to try to find out just type of weird stuff that you could be as a traitor that example that might even work for a bureau 13 game Oh, yeah, I was just thinking, when you were saying this, I was thinking Bureau 13, I was going to say it right after you finished, imagine you in some kind of magic pawn shop in Bureau 13. Oh, the, the itinerant magic shop that always seems to appear down an alleyway and disappear. Well, your your job is to watch it for the owner while he's out de- taking care of some business. <laughs> or your character runs it, you know, that's your character concept. That's true, too. The whole premise for the Friday the 13th show was they yep. had this magic shop full of stuff. Yep. The owner dies and they don't know half the stuff that's in there. And some of it gets up and walks out by accident. (laughs) And they had to track down stuff out of the manifesto. Oh, yeah. See, you know, I like the idea of of being a merchant because, A, it allows you to have a lot more flexibility as far as, you know, reinventing yourself at a moment's notice. And it also lets you just pull out absolutely cool stuff for no really good reason, but there's enough reason that you can do it. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Anything else, guys? 
No, I think we're good. Yeah, yeah. I think we covered everything, yeah. I don't think we're going to beat this thing any harder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you've seen a lot of good reasons why you'd want to have characters or entire parties as traders in whatever game that you have. It's, it provides opportunities to gain information, to make contacts within a community. It's a way of introducing strange and wonderful things into your campaign that otherwise might not be there. It's one of those things where, since you're a merchant, you, you can be anything. You can be anything from a simple peddler on, of scones on the side of the road to someone who's a major distributor of products and, and making world-changing effects. It's up to you how you want to do it in your campaign or what kind of scope you want it to be. But it's something I think everyone should give a try. And so we hope you do. That's all we have for you. Until next week. This is Bruce Sheffer saying... There are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. And this is Blix. Remember, bullets speak louder than words. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. This is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.